You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Evan Banks. And I'm Deanna Lee. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's April 29th. Now that the Russian military in Ukraine has retreated to positions in Belarus and Russia, presumably to refit and rearm before moving east, a de facto ceasefire is in place in Kyiv and central Ukraine. According to RAND experts, this moment may present an opportunity for the UN to call for a formal ceasefire in reclaimed territory and recommend that willing states move into northern Ukraine with a peacekeeping force. The path to a peacekeeping operation could be a challenging one. Russia is a permanent member of the UN Security Council, so it maintains veto power over peacekeeping or enforcement operations. That means the UN General Assembly would have to draft and vote on a resolution that calls on member states for collective action to restore peace in Ukraine. Such a resolution would not be legally binding, but it would call on the international community to voluntarily assist in ending the conflict. It would also present a broader opportunity to develop customary international law around these types of conflicts. Some might argue that establishing a UN or NATO-led peacekeeping mission in northern Ukraine would escalate the conflict. But our researchers say that, considering growing evidence of Russian war crimes, apparent attacks and criminality against Ukraine's population, and Russia's demonstrated violations of the law of armed conflict, the current situation does not seem sustainable. Russia's aggression in Ukraine may prove to be even riskier and costlier than once thought. That's according to RAND experts, who recently wrote about some of the long-term geostrategic consequences that are coming into focus even as the fighting continues. They highlight three main points. First, Russia faces a dim future. Its military has been faltering despite investments in modernization. The Russian economy is in significant decline, partly due to sanctions. And Russian aggression and atrocities in Ukraine appear to have shattered the Kremlin's attempts to sow divisions in the U.S. and in Europe. Second, Ukraine has shined far beyond expectations, and its continued military success, not to mention the inspiring leadership of President Volodymyr Zelensky, could hearten proponents of democracy elsewhere and discourage dictators around the world. It also appears that eight years of U.S. and NATO train and equip programs have helped Ukrainians effectively use Western arms. And with more powerful weapons from the West, Ukraine can better defend its southern and eastern regions. Third, the West has learned some lessons and gained strategic advantage. For example, the war has spurred NATO to increase defense spending. The alliance is also putting permanent, not just rotating, forces in its eastern flank. And it's expected that Finland and Sweden may join NATO this summer. For now, however, the situation in Ukraine remains dire. European security hasn't been so challenged since the collapse of the USSR. But Ukraine and its Western partners are showing that aggression in Europe may not pay. And Russia could emerge a massive loser. Around 100,000 Americans died of drug overdoses between April 2020 and April 2021, 
with nearly two-thirds of them involving synthetic opioids, such as fentanyl. A dose just the size of a few grains of salt is enough to kill. These grim statistics show why the Commission on Combating Synthetic Opioid Trafficking, with guidance from RAND, recently called for a whole-of-nation effort to shut off the flow of illicit opioids, expand access to treatment, and drive down the death toll linked to synthetic opioids. RAND's David Lucky, a senior international defense researcher, and Jamie Fugelston, director of Congressional Relations, discussed the Commission's recommendations in a new Q&A on the RAND blog. They discussed the urgency and personal nature of the research and analysis that was conducted. This is a crisis that affects everyone in one way or another, Lucky said. You know someone who died from this, or you know someone who knows someone who died from this. Two degrees of separation is all you get. Lucky also noted that if the U.S. does act on the wide-ranging recommendations in the Commission's report, then it wouldn't be the first time in recent memory that the country embraced an all-hands-on-deck approach to a life-threatening problem. I look at this as a challenge like 9-11, he said. On 9-11, roughly 3,000 Americans were killed, and in response to that, the United States came together and put forth a bipartisan, whole-of-government, whole-of-nation effort. Can you imagine if the 65,000 people who died from synthetic opioids in the past year were all killed on one day? The difference is that it happens day after day, and Americans get anesthetized to it. On a positive note, Fugelston said, The message from the report is that there is a bipartisan consensus on the seriousness of this problem, and there is a bipartisan roadmap to advance some real, credible solutions to dealing with it. You can read the full conversation with Lucky and Fugelston on the RAND blog. The U.S. Department of Defense estimates that almost half a million service members sustained a traumatic brain injury, or TBI, in the past two decades. And because not all TBIs are reported, this number could be even higher. In a new report, RAND researchers examine how TBIs affect veterans throughout their lives, consider the unanswered questions about treatments and interventions, and offer recommendations for improving care and support for both veterans and those who care for them. So how do TBIs affect veterans? They may experience cognitive symptoms such as poor attention and memory and physical symptoms, including headaches, vision problems, and fatigue for months or years after injury. And as a result of such symptoms, these injuries can negatively affect veterans' career prospects and the quality of their social interactions. On top of all this, co-occurring conditions such as post-traumatic stress disorder can compound these challenges and further complicate veterans' care. As part of the study, some individuals shared what it was like to live with the long-term effects of a TBI. Here's what one veteran had to say. Quote, I still have problems with losing track of a conversation. I've actually lost my balance, hit my head, had another concussion. When the treatment cycle is coming to an end, it gets harder to control the headaches. When it comes to treatment, the study highlights that there is limited evidence on the effectiveness of interventions to address the long-term effects of traumatic brain injuries. And because brain science is still developing, there is uncertainty about how TBI affects aging. 
Now, as for recommendations, the study points to several ways to improve care and support for veterans with TBI. First, create long-term systems of support for veterans and caregivers. This includes helping veterans understand what to expect over time when managing traumatic brain injuries, finding more resources to increase caregiver support, and reducing financial barriers to long-term care. Second, expand access to multidisciplinary treatment. Given veterans' increased need for care as they age, the VA could expand its network of facilities that address the complex combination of physical and mental health problems that can persist long after military service ends. Third, promote health-enhancing behaviors, such as regular exercise, a healthy diet, and abstinence from alcohol and other substances. These can go a long way toward improving veterans' overall health and well-being and supporting their treatment. Fourth and finally, continue to invest in research to help fill existing gaps in the knowledge base about TBI treatment. When states increase their minimum hourly wage by $1, divorce rates among low-income Americans declined by 7 to 15% over the next two years. That's according to a new study by researchers at UCLA and RAND. This analysis is the first to examine the effects of states' minimum wage increases on marriage and divorce rates among low-wage earners. In it, the researchers looked at survey data from 2004 through 2015 from two independent monthly surveys. In addition to a decrease in divorce, they also found that a $1 increase in the minimum wage delayed marriage among low-wage earners. That is, when the minimum wage went up, poor Americans got married later in life, perhaps because individuals who are less resource-constrained can spend more time searching for the right partner. The study findings suggest that raising wages may be more effective at helping disadvantaged families than federal programs focused on communication and coping skills. Here's how the authors summed it up. During the same years that federal policymakers spent nearly a billion dollars on educational programs that had negligible effects on marriage and divorce, states that simply raised their minimum wages delayed marriages and reduced divorce rates significantly among low-wage earners. Future efforts to strengthen low-income families should therefore explore additional policy levers, such as expanding the earned income tax credit or access to health care, that may have additional benefits to family formation and stability. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. For more on today's episode, check the show notes at rand.org slash podcast. We'll see you next week.